Who should we promote to management? It's kind of like asking who should sing tenor in a quartet. The guy that sings tenor, of course. Sometimes answers are staring us right in the face. Welcome to the Daily Drive. I'm your host, Ken Knorr. The show is dedicated to keeping you informed, educated, and most importantly, driven to succeed. Everyone at the Daily Drive team hopes you enjoy this show. Welcome back to The Daily Drive. Really glad you're here, and I hope you're having an absolutely fantastic week. That quote that I used at the open of the show there was from Henry Ford. I think that often as leaders, we make decisions based on the information in front of us, and others look at that from the outside and say, why didn't they see such a simple and easy solution to the problem? So leaders do make mistakes. The thing that we're going to take a look at over the next three episodes or so is how we make decisions, how our decision-making can be flawed, and what we can do about that. How do we identify the flaws in our decision-making process and what safeguards we can put in around us as leaders to prevent us from making bad decisions. The first thing I think we have to look at when we think about decision-making and bad decision-making is we have to understand how truly decision-making works. Decision-making lies at the heart of our personal and professional lives. Every day, we make decisions. Some are small. Some are family-related and innocuous. Others lot more important, affecting people's lives, their livelihoods, and well-being. Inevitably, we make mistakes along the way. The reality is that enormously important decisions made by intelligent, responsible people with the best information and the best intentions are sometimes hopelessly flawed. So I'm going to give you three different examples of flawed decision-making. The first, consider Wang Labs. By the early 1980s, Wang Labs was in a strong position. They were the dominant word processor, the Wang word processor. Wang sales were $3 billion, compared to IBM's sales of $47 billion. But An Wang was intent to overtake IBM and to become the leading computer company by 1990. For the next few years, he actually carried around a scorecard, charting his progress against IBM. But by the early 1990s, the result was not success. Instead, it was bankruptcy. The flawed decision that started Wang Labs' inevitable decline was on Wang's reluctance to develop a personal computer. Early models from Atari were showing promise, and at the time, Apple was the leader in the technology. 
That's hard to imagine today that the personal computer was being led by Apple, but it was. Yet Wang rejected the opportunity, saying, quote, The PC is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. As a result, Wang was slow to market in the 1980s with the killer app, the PC. Consider Brigadier General Matthew Broderick. He was the Chief of Homeland Security Operations Center who was responsible for alerting President Bush if Hurricane Katrina breached the levees in New Orleans. He went home on Monday, August 29, 2005, after reporting that they seemed to be holding despite multiple reports of breaches. These executives are highly qualified for their jobs, and yet they made decisions that seemed clearly wrong. Why? And how can we learn from this and avoid making similar mistakes? So the answers are actually found in neuroscience in a subfield called decision neuroscience. And here's how the brain can trip us up. We depend primarily on two hardwired processes for decision making. Our brain assesses what's going on using pattern recognition, and we react to that information or ignore it because of emotional tags. Both of those processes are normally reliable. They're actually part of our evolutionary advantage. But in certain circumstances, both can let us down. Pattern recognition in psychology and cognitive neuroscience is the cognitive process that matches information from stimulus with the information retrieved from our memory. Thank you, Wikipedia. Pattern recognition occurs when information from the environment is received, causing an automatic activation of a specific content of long-term memory. See, recognizing patterns allows us to predict and expect what's coming. Faced with a new situation, we make assumptions based on prior experiences and prior judgments and prior decisions. Thus, a chess master can assess a chess game and choose a high-quality move in a very little bit of time. He draws on patterns he or she has seen before. But pattern recognition can also mislead us. When we're dealing with seemingly familiar situations, it seems familiar. Brains can cause us to think and that we understand them when we actually don't. So what happened to Matthew Broderick during Hurricane Katrina demonstrates pattern recognition failure. Broderick had been involved in operation centers in Vietnam. He had been in other military engagements. And he had even been uh, the leader of Homeland Security during previous hurricanes. Those experiences taught him uh, a lot. He, he gained and drew from his previous experiences. And what it taught him that early reports surrounding major events are often false. And it was better to wait for the ground truth from a reliable source before acting. Unfortunately, he and nobody else had any experience with a hurricane hitting a city that was below sea level. 
by late on August 29th, some 12 hours after Katrina had hit New Orleans, Broderick had received 17 reports of major flooding and levee breaches. But he had also gotten conflicting information. The Army Corps of Engineers had reported that there was no evidence of levee breaches. And he was watching CNN and seeing reporters on Bourbon Street in the French Quarter partying, claiming they had dodged a bullet. Broderick's pattern recognition process stepped in and told him that these contrary reports, the ones from the Army Corps of Engineers and from CNN, they were the ground truth that he was seeking. So before going home for the night, he issued a situation report stating that the levees had not been breached, although he did add that further assessment would be needed the next day. Emotional tagging, thanks again Wikipedia, is the process by which emotional information attaches itself to thoughts and experience stored in our memories. This emotional information tells us whether to pay attention to something or not, and it tells us what sort of action we should be contemplating, immediate or postponed, fight or flight. Actions we've already taken in the past, whether driven by rational decision-making or not, are filed in our brains with emotional tags that serve as markers that can anchor subsequent thinking. When the brain stores a memory of an event or an action, it also stores along with it this emotion that happened at the time. Were we happy with the outcome? Did it upset us? This emotion that gets tagged with it. And this is what we call emotional tagging. Like pattern recognition, emotional tagging helps us reach sensible decisions most of the time. But it also can be misleading. So let's pick up where we left off with Wang when he said the PC is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. The decision was surprising. I mean, Wang, the company, had already made huge innovations, and the personal computer was not beyond the company's technical capabilities. Even more so, the idea for developing a PC at Wang had come from an influential source on Wang's own son. In 1981, IBM entered the market with the 5150 PC. It was reasonably priced, and it ran on a non-proprietary operating system. You might recall the story of Microsoft and MS-DOS. Right after IBM's introduction, the market for PCs began to explode. Four months later, the 5150 was named Time's Man of the Year. It was a computer on the front of a magazine. Wang could no longer ignore the market. But then he made another bad decision. He chose a proprietary operating system when the rest of the industry was going IBM compatible. Microsoft. Though the Wang personal computer was not an immediate disaster, it wasn't long before customers replaced word processors with computers, and Wang's company fell rapidly. This mistake contributed to Wang's demise a few years later, 
was heavily influenced by Wang's dislike of IBM. Remember that scorecard? He believed that he had been cheated by IBM over a new technology he had invented early in his career. These feelings made him reject a software platform linked to an IBM product, even though the platform was by a completely separate party, Microsoft. Why doesn't the brain pick up on these mistakes, these errors, and why don't we correct them? The most obvious reason is that much of that mental work we do, it's unconscious. We don't really think it out. It makes us hard to check data and logic we use to make a decision. Typically, we spot flaws in our thinking only after we see the results and the errors of our judgment. Matthew Broderick found out that his ground truth rule of thumb was an inappropriate response to Hurricane Katrina, only after it was too late. Wang found out that his preference for proprietary software was flawed only after Wang's personal computer failed in the marketplace, that his emotional attachment to the IBM situation was flawed thinking. You see, the problem with unconscious thinking is a lack of checks and balances in our decision-making. Our brains do not naturally follow this classic textbook model. Instead, we analyze the situation using pattern recognition, and we arrive at a decision to act or not act by using emotional tags. The two processes happen almost instantaneously. Now, in the coming two shows, we're going to take a look at the three markers that can help us identify problems in our decision-making. And after that, we're going to take a look at what steps we can take to safeguard and identify those markers so that we can reduce the mistakes we make in decision-making. I hope that you uh, learned something great today, and I hope that you make great decisions today. And one of the decisions that I hope you make is to come back tomorrow And join us here at The Daily Drive. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, That Company. Why should you work with That Company as your private label or reseller partner instead of those other guys? Because we get results for your clients. That's why we're the private label provider of choice for some of the biggest names in the digital industry. You just don't know it. If you want to give us feedback, drop by dailydriveshow.com. Don't forget, you can listen to us live in Central Florida on WQBQ every day at 7.30 a.m. The show wouldn't be possible without everyone on the Daily Drive Show team, producer Josh Cardoza, web guru Taj Royer, and the social media man with the plan, Roy Wilson. If you think we did a good job today, toss us a rating or a review on iTunes, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow.